Okay, everybody all right? Um, This morning we are continuing our journey in Luke's Gospel. Um, We're in Luke chapter 2, and um, I'm going to read in a moment from verse 39. Luke chapter 2, and at verse 39. Um, If you're allowed to have a favorite, Luke would be my favorite Gospel, and um, I, I love the I like the way he writes, I like the way he kind of um, pushes it all out, works it all out in the book of Acts. I like the way that it's practical. I like the way that it calls to us to engage in the business of the kingdom. Hello? Okay, don't go quiet on me now, okay? I love the way that it calls us to engage in the business of the kingdom. And Jesus, you know, through the eyes of Luke, as he records all of these things and as he gathers all of this information, as he puts it down in a, you know, in a format that we can follow and, and take in, um, he presents to us a great model in Jesus in terms of the way we should live our lives and in terms of how we should engage with the purposes of God. And um, this really is, is quite a, a challenge to us this morning, as you'll see when we get in to it. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 2 from verse 39, and it says this. And when they had performed, that's Joseph and Mary, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child, that's Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Fantastic. So uh, what I want to draw out of this, particularly this morning, is some key things about growth. And... um, you know, we had a little bit of a, a series earlier this year, which, um, which I called Normal Christianity, which was born out of the fact that um, many of us, uh, because we've been Christians a lot of years, think ourselves to be mature Christians. And, you know, maturity in our, in our faith, maturity in our Christianity, has nothing to do with how long we've been Christians, but has everything to do with how much we've grown. And... You know, people grow at different speeds. People grow in different ways. Um, you know, we're all unique in that sense. But actually, growth is important. Growth is something that we all need to engage in. And one of the things that I want us to see clearly this morning through these verses is that actually 
growth doesn't just happen on its own, but we have to actually engage with things that cause us to grow. We actually have to invest in ourselves in order to become what God is calling us to be. And if we don't do that, we just kind of stay where we are, you know. And, um, you know, I've met a lot of Christians over the years who had a wonderful salvation experience, but just kind of stopped there. Uh, And, you know, that's okay. They're still going to heaven. They're still saved. But actually, there is so much more that God has for us and so much more that God wants for us. And if you want to stay in that place, you know, you can still get to heaven. That's okay. But actually, if we want to really um, follow Jesus, and if we want to really be worshippers of God in every sense, we need to start engaging in a way that causes us to grow and to develop. Are you with me? Yeah. And so well, that's what these verses are about. Let me just pull a few verses out to try and illustrate some of that for you. Um, verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, how do you imagine that happens? Now, um, I've had some, again, some interesting conversations with people over the years about who is responsible for um, a child, who is responsible for their growth, particularly in this context, who is responsible for their spiritual growth. And um, many people want to push that responsibility onto the church. Well, I want to say that's bunkum, that's complete nonsense. Where did you get that idea from? Um, Now, certainly the church is here to teach and to direct and to give oversight and to help you. And of course, you know, when we gather together on a Sunday, we want a program for our kids that helps them to engage with Sunday gatherings properly and, you know, in an appropriate way. Uh, We want to be building them up spiritually. We want to be encouraging them together, you know, corporately to do these things. But actually, it's the parents who hold the key responsibility for the growth, development and maturity or the maturing of the child. It's not the church's responsibility. It's your responsibility. Jesus went home with uh, Moses. How did he make it in? With Joseph and Mary. You know, um, they, uh, he went home and he grew under their parenting. Uh, to the extent that, you know, when he, when he's, um, you know, when they go to, to, uh, Jerusalem, uh, for, for Passover, you know, he's, he's in the temple and he's having, you know, proper conversations, theological conversations with the, with the guys there about stuff that he is actually, gr- now listen, people want to write that off as, oh, well, that was Jesus. Well, the Bible teaches us very clearly that Jesus worked within the total framework of humanity. That he set aside, Philippians chapter 2, that he set aside the glory of heaven. What does that mean? That, that, he, that he clothed himself in humanity. What, what does that mean? It means that although he, was, he never stopped being 100% God, in terms of his being, he restricted himself to humanity. He became, in every sense, a man. Um, I remember sitting in a youth meeting once um, where I had to have... <laughs> Some, an interesting conversation, let's say, with the guy who was running the youth meeting. And it wasn't Steve, so don't get any wrong ideas. Because the guy running the meeting 
was was saying to the young people who were gathered around him that you know of course Jesus was God so when he was born you know the minute he was born you could have had an intelligent conversation with him because he was God you know and he was probably born walking and you know that's it's complete nonsense okay Jesus was born like a human being he was born a baby and so he needed looking after like a baby and when the appropriate time came he needed nurturing and teaching and developing like any human being does so uh, you know it's it's a testimony to the parenting of Mary and Joseph that he's able to sit in the temple and have those sorts of conversations they clearly took their roles seriously as parents in teaching Jesus you know up, up to that age of, of um, 12 years old wasn't he when the when he was found in the temple like that up to at the age of 12 he was having um, proper theological conversations with guys who knew their stuff he was asking them questions he wanted to find out that is a testimony to the parenting of Mary and Joseph I um there are some people I correspond with again on Facebook, um, just to put this into another context for you. And um, I was reading something that, that Zoe had written about um, her daughter, um, whose name escapes me. Um, but she was saying that, you know, over the events of this weekend, Zoe, um, seeing the, the, the events in Paris on the TV, went and found Mummy to tell Mummy about them. But she asked this question. She said, Mummy, um, why uh, is it that this week there have been bombings in Baghdad, there have been bombings in Beirut, and we haven't heard anything at all about them. But now there's a bombing in Paris, and, you, and it's just completely occupied all the TV space. And, and Zoe had to have a conversation with her about that, you know, and, and kind of help her to understand some of that. But she's seven years old. Hello? <laughs> she's seven years old. And she's already having intelligent conversations about what's going on in the world. And um, I, I sent a message to Zoe saying that that is a testimony to good parenting. You know, that, that she already at the age of seven has got some sort of grasp, proper grasp of some of the issues. You know, not that she's ready for mastermind or anything. All right. But, but already she's on that journey of understanding and dealing with the issues of life. Now, uh, Understand the balance in this because you can, if your entire uh, process in this is to teach a child to be brilliant, rob them of their childhood. And we don't want to do that either. All right. So good parenting includes both. It includes helping your child as they grow to enjoy the things of childhood. But it also must include input into their lives to help them to grow and develop spiritually and mentally. Yes? And that's not my responsibility, that's your responsibility for your kids. And we will do things here to support you in that, but actually, this is the biblical pattern. And, and it says that as he grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, the favor of God was upon him. I wonder, so the question that I had in my head when I read that earlier in the week was, I wonder how you could tell. How do you know that the favor of God is on somebody. So um, this morning when I came in early, I've been thinking about this all week, this morning I came in early and decided to have a little wander around in the Greek, like you do, and um, discovered that the word that is translated favor there is actually the word charis. Now charis is a Greek word that you are probably very familiar with because we normally translate it as grace. It is by God's grace, God's charis, 
you know, that you have been saved. Um, the gifts of the Spirit come as gifts of charis, gifts of grace from God. And it's that word charis that appears there in the text, that the charis of God was upon him. What does charis mean? It has to do with receiving grace and being gracious. So you see there is an investment in that results in fruit that comes out. It's to do with receiving grace and being gracious. Yes? Um, It's to do with the way you behave. Um, It's to do with the divine influence upon the heart. Yes? Uh, And the influence upon the heart that is reflected in the way we live and the way we behave. In other words, that our worship of of God, that our understanding of God, that the attention that we pay to him makes an impact on our lives in such a way that we behave differently because of it. Are you with me? So if we're saying that the favor of God was upon him in this way, then clearly uh, that was seen in the way he behaved, in the way he spoke, in the way he dealt with people, in the way he engaged with things, in his uh, worship of God, in his diligence, in his persistence, in his discipline even, that all of those things would have displayed something of the favor of God on his life. Are you with me? Okay, three of you are. Anybody else with me? Okay, you're getting this? Does it make sense? Okay. I think it makes sense, so, you know, I'm not asking you, you know, if it makes sense because it might not. I'm asking you if you can make it make sense. (laughs) Yes? Okay, good. Um, Verse 49. Verse 49, and he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, I want to say immediately for a 12-year-old to be speaking like that, what a wonderful upbringing. Because there's something that Jesus has understood here about his father's house. There's something that Jesus has understood and committed himself to in terms of fellowship, being in the house of God and engaging with the things of God. He, where else would he be? I mean, that's what he's saying to his parents when they were looking for him. Where else would I be except in God's house? You know, we came to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover. We came to worship. And this is where the temple is. This is where the house of God is. And in those days, I mean, although you had synagogues for teaching and that sort of thing, really, the real worship took place in the temple. And so if you were going to really worship, you went to the temple because that's where it all happened. And so in Jesus' mind, that's why he was there. He was there to worship. He was there to engage in the house of God with the, with the priests and the scribes and whoever else he could get a hold of, you know, uh, and uh, further his journey of faith, further his growth, his spiritual growth, and his understanding theologically so that he developed himself. And um, this, again, raises up all sorts of bits and pieces, at least in my head. I'm not sure if it's just me. You can tell me afterwards. But for me, this displays in the early life of Jesus an appropriate commitment. Something just changed then. What happened? Something bumped up? No? It displays an appropriate commitment to the house of God, to his faith, to the organizational, the organized aspects of his faith. I once invited somebody to church and their response to me was, no, I, I don't really have anything to do with organized religion. I said, that's absolutely fine because we're the most disorganized bunch of people you could possibly wish to come across, so you'll feel right at home. It'll be fine. 
Um, that didn't really do the trick. They didn't come. But, you know, um, if, if our faith is to make sense and is to find a proper home and is to grow successfully, there must be engagement with the house of God. Okay? I know I'm preaching to the choir here because you're all here this morning, which shows, you know, a healthy engagement with the house of God. We must be careful that that doesn't slip. We must be careful that we engage properly with that in a sustained and, you know, and positive way. Um, I remember in my very early years uh, as a Christian, and I mean right at the beginning of my journey of faith, um, a wise old bloke, um, I'm pretty sure it was Pastor Barry, I don't remember, but a wise, very old bloke, don't tell him I said that, um, said to me, you know, Dave, on this journey of faith, he said, what I want you to know is this, that being at church and having fellowship is vitally important. He said, you know, you can get to a place where you stop praying. You can get to a, a place where you stop giving. You can get to a place where, you know, you stop reading your Bible. And you can still manage to kind of move in faith if you are still connected to the fellowship. And if you're still connected to the fellowship, the fellowship can help you to restore those things to a proper place. You hear what I'm saying? But if you remove fellowship from the equation... You isolate yourself, and when the pressure's on, you've got nobody to stand with you. When you're struggling, you've, not, you've got nobody to help you and encourage you and give you some direction. You know, these things are obvious when we say them, aren't they? But actually, so many people think that they can do faith without being connected. And Jesus clearly understood that if you're really going to grow in faith, you've got to be connected. It's the right thing to do. What's the first thing, you know, again, at Luke's Gospel, don't you love Luke's Gospel? What's the first thing that Jesus does after, you know, he, he goes and gets baptized, he gets filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit takes him out into the uh, desert, you know, uh, the temptations and all of that, which we'll be coming to soon, and then he comes back out of the desert, it says, in the power of the Spirit, what's the first thing he does? Well, he goes to the synagogue. Because it's the Sabbath. Because that's what you do. You go and engage with, with God's people. You go and have some fellowship. You go and open the scriptures together and you think about what it means and you push a few things around and have some debate and whatever else. You know, That's what he did. That was his pattern. You know, because he understood the importance and the value of that connection. Now, it's difficult to assess, I would guess, whether him going to the synagogue helped his ministry or not in terms of his overall aims and objectives. You, you could make an argument that actually he, he could have missed out on the synagogue and still achieved his objectives. Well, maybe that's possible. But you see, Jesus knew what was right. He knew what was appropriate. He knew what was helpful. He knew what was good. He knew what would cause him to grow and cause the people around him to grow. And part of that process was being totally connected with the house of God. Some people might want to suggest, and, I, and I've heard people suggest this, that, you know, tradition, it's all about tradition, isn't it? That's traditional church, that's the way we, you know, church has always done things. I'm not a traditionalist, I don't really, you know, believe in tradition, I don't think tradition's a good, you know, you've heard those conversations, haven't you? Oh, it's tradition. Why do you do that? It's just tradition. Well, I want you to know, not all tradition is bad. Actually, things became traditions because they were good. Is that not right? 
Because if it was bad, you wouldn't make it a tradition, would you? Things became a tradition because they were good. Um, Christmas is coming. Help me, Jesus. And, uh, you know, it's not in the Bible that we should all give presents to each other. But we do it. It's a tradition. It's a good tradition. It's an opportunity to bless the people that you love and say thank you and give them something meaningful to, you know, to thank them for being who they are and to just show your appreciation and your love for them. It's a great opportunity for that, giving gifts. Don't spend too much money on me. But the, the reality is, it's Jesus' birthday. He should be the one getting the gifts. Okay, if we want to be biblical, it's his birthday. He should be the one getting all the gifts. But actually, giving each other gifts at Christmas, it's a good tradition. And so, whether this is tradition or not, whether our meetings are traditional or not, it's not the argument. Traditions started because they were something good. And sometimes traditions can become a little bit inhibiting and, and not help us, and we need to deal with that when it happens, but we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Hello? Are you with me? And... It's really great, you know, in these verses that that Jesus is found having these conversations, these theological conversations and asking questions. And, um, you know, we we engage with the Father's house so that we can learn. We engage so that we can have our journeys fueled, so that we can get a better understanding of of the Bible and uh, what it means and how we apply it and all of those sorts of things. Those are really great reasons for engaging. But... I just want to say this because I know some of us would lean, so me as a teacher, I would lean particularly in that direction. I want to grapple with theology. I want to understand things. I want to develop my learning in that sense. But um, what I do want to say is this, that theology won't save you. You can get, if you want to, you can get theology from a book. You can sit at home, you can read it, you can be the best read person in the universe and still not be saved. You know, salvation comes through revelation. The Holy Spirit reveals to you the predicament that you're in and then he reveals to you the solution to the predicament and then he gives you the faith so that you can be saved. Hello? Theology is not going to save you. But theology is important to build a proper foundation for living. If we don't understand what the Bible says, what it means to us today and how we should apply it in our lives, then we're just in a situation where, well, the Bible says we're just, you know, tossed about on the waves or we're blown about by the winds. In other words, whatever wind picks us up will carry us to where it wants to carry us and that'll be that. If we do not intentionally build a foundation for our lives. Do you understand what I'm saying? And notice the emphasis on intentionally. Okay, that you and I need to engage with the scriptures and understand what they're saying to us and learn to apply them in our lives day by day. That takes some intention. It takes some work. Yes? And we must engage with that. And Jesus, clearly, that is um, part of the source of his growth. That he's on a journey of learning to understand the scriptures. He's found where? In the temple. What's he doing? He's having a theological conversation. Why is he doing that? 
so that he can grow in his understanding of God, which helps him to grow then, therefore, in his relationship with God, so that he can understand what God wants from him, and then go out and start to put that into practice. Are you there? Okay. We're doing all right. Um, just one thing about theology while I'm, while I'm on that. <laughs> just out of a few conversations again that I've had recently. Let me introduce you to a phrase that um, I have used a lot. I've picked it up from a couple of people and I've used a lot over the years. There is this condition in Christianity which is called majoring on minors. In other words, we take things which... I'm not saying they're not important, but they're not as important as some other things, but we make them the most important thing. And it starts to consume our lives, and it messes us up. Hello? And interestingly, these minors that people major on usually tend to be either at the beginning or the end. We're either totally obsessed with Genesis and creation and how it all happened and, you know, is, is a day really 24 hours or is it just a period of time or, you know, aren't the first few verses of Genesis, isn't it written as poetry? Does that mean it didn't really happen? You know, we get consumed with all of those arguments. Or at the other end, it's like, you know, Jesus is coming back, but first of all, there's got to be a thousand days of this, then there's got to be a week of that, then there's got to be 12 hours of this, and then six minutes of this, and 32 seconds of that, and maybe a few more days here, there, just for good measure. It all gets really, really ridiculous. Ridiculous. Now, knowing where we've come from is important. Knowing where we're going is important. The problem is that we get so consumed with these things that we forget about the bit in the middle. And the bit in the middle is vitally important because that's where you and I find God and grow in God. And that needs to become the thing that we major on. And let's not lose the discussions about, you know, Genesis and Revelation. Let's have those discussions. Let's debate that. Let's do all that. But let's not let that take over the important bit in the middle. Are you with me? Okay. Joy's waving at me, so I know I'm doing well. Thank you, Joy. <laughs> okay. Third thing, and this is my last thing. Luke 2.52. This is a pivotal verse. This is really important. In fact, it's so important, John Andrews wrote a really great book on it called 2.52. So um, if you are wondering what to buy, people forget, I have a copy so you can just buy me chocolate, that would be fine. Um, but if you're buying for somebody who doesn't have a copy of this, John Andrews' book 252 is totally brilliant on this. More brilliant than I'm going to be right now, but I'm going to give you something useful, okay? Luke 252, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. How did that happen? Well, a continuation of what had gone on before. He invested in himself. He grew on purpose. Hello? He grew on purpose. He did things that caused him to grow. He put himself in places that caused him to grow. He read things that caused him to grow. To grow in what? To grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and man.
what does that look like for us investing in ourselves uh, it means finding wisdom Jesus grew in wisdom and stature I would like to suggest actually that the stature was probably um, a, a, the fruit of the wisdom that actually as he grew in wisdom he achieved more stature amongst the community because he was seen as somebody who had wisdom you understand what I'm saying? Because nobody appointed him to anything. Nobody gave him status. But they recognized in him somebody of real stature. What were they seeing? Well, clearly, from what Luke tells us here, they were seeing wisdom. Have a read through the Proverbs and see how many times it challenges us to chase after wisdom. And all the results that chasing after wisdom brings for us. Wisdom is our friend. (laughs) Wisdom helps us to grow. Wisdom helps us to help other people and builds us in stature. How do you grow in wisdom? Um, Let me be careful now what I say about this. You can find wisdom in books. So I do advocate reading. I would like you, first of all, to read your Bibles. I would like your Bible to be your most read book and you having to replace it at least every year because it's worn out. Or, in my case, buy a new iPad every two years because it's broken down because of the amount of use it gets. Um, the Bible is our primary source of understanding. Now, I, I, I know that for many of us there's challenges in reading our Bibles because some of the stuff is difficult to interpret into a modern context. That's why you have people like me. Okay? It's my job on a Sunday to help you with some of those things and put them into the, the modern context so that you can understand how it works. But I also want you to know that God is just as capable of speaking to you on a daily basis through the scriptures and imparting wisdom to you through them. Even, and this really, ah, this hurts me to say this, you know, as a teacher, even sometimes when you take things out of context. God help us. Even sometimes when you read things and you take it out of context, God can still speak to you. How about that? Okay, that's just incredible. You can sit at home without any theological training, read your Bible, and God will speak to you. And you will gain wisdom. And hopefully, if you start to put that wisdom into practice, you will gain stature. So, reading, that's a really good thing. But I think it goes further than that. So, we've already mentioned you know the the corporate gatherings the things we do together Sunday mornings vitally important that we come together to worship God and vitally important that we gather around his word together so that those among us who have a gift for teaching exercise their gift and you you see things a bit clearer or you go a bit deeper or you find a different perspective yes are you with me equally important are things like our Thursday evenings where we're we're taking a topic and we're really drilling down into it and trying to understand how that applies to our lives, how it all fits, and also taking the time and the space to practice it a little bit on one another. (laughs) Okay, Listen, you're not going to get good at prophecy if you don't have a go at it. 
And what we do here is we create a, a safe space for you to have a go at it. So that when you're out and about and doing other things in other places, if the Spirit moves you, you've got a little bit of confidence to have a go at prophesying over somebody because you've had some practice. Are you with me? And Thursday nights particularly are about that, creating a safe space for people to have a go at stuff. Are you with me? But let me add a couple of things to that. Um, There are a wealth of books and study courses and distance learning courses that you can engage in to help you develop in your understanding and out of that in your faith. Now, I want you to be careful about that because there's as much rubbish out there as there is good stuff out there. And um, it's very important also that you don't get focused on just one author. Okay? I'm having an interesting conversation with somebody about the minute who has become obsessed with one author. And whilst I would want to say this particular author has written some very good stuff, he's also written some stuff which is not so good. Uh, and if we want to find balance, you need to read a little bit wider than just one author. If you're going to buy books, don't buy them all from the same person, unless it's me or John Andrews. Okay? If you're going to buy books, um, have a look around and uh, you know, ask. Okay, I'll be happy to recommend, if you've got a subject you want to study, I'll be happy to recommend two or three books on the subject that will help you because they will give some different perspectives and help you to find a balanced view. Are you with me? Distance learning courses, if, the, if it's a good Bible college, and I do highly recommend Mattersea, they have some great distance learning courses, are designed to help you to process things for yourself. They're designed to put the tools in your hands so that you can look at the scriptures and work it out pretty much for yourself. Maybe you need some reference books. That's always a good thing. You know, Just check into the Greek a little bit, look at the background, look at the context, understand a little bit of the history behind it, those sorts of things. That's always good. But a distance learning course will help you to do that effectively so that you can actually become a, a craftsman in the Word of God. You can actually learn some real skills to actually unpack it and be able to communicate it to other people. So reading is good. But the, the thing I want to finish with on the end here is this. It says about Jesus that when he went back home with Joseph and Mary, that he was submissive to them. In other words, that he made himself accountable to them. Now that just blows your mind to begin with, doesn't it? That the Son of God, that God incarnate, God himself, goes home with a pair of human beings who, you know, whilst they're really great people, um, they're not academic geniuses, they're not theologians, they're just really, you know, godly people. And the Son of God, God incarnate, is submissive to them. He allows Mary and Joseph to watch over him, to speak into his life, to teach him, to mold him, to develop him, to help him to grow. Yes? Now, you need somebody in your life who will do that with you. You need a mentor. Or, um, I mean, there's different phrases, different words for it in different, you know, settings. Um, Spiritual advisors, you know, spiritual directors sometimes. A, A mentor. Somebody who you talk to 
who is perhaps, you know, a rung or even two rungs up the ladder from you. They don't have to be, you know, a professor in a Bible college somewhere, but just somebody who's a bit further on in the journey, who understands you and where you're at and what's going on, who can speak directly into your life and say, okay, listen, you're doing really well here, but actually this area needs a bit of work. You know, these things are very difficult for you to do for yourself. Somebody from the outside looking into your life, okay, has a much better chance of, of spotting these things and helping you to grow. Mentors are vitally important. Are you with me? I have mentors. Um, next year, I will be 60. Good response. Good response. Next year I'll be 60. In February I will have been a Christian for 42 years. Or is it 43? It might be 43. Um, so I have all that journey behind me. I have six years of formal study at a Bible college. I have two degrees in theology. I have more books than, than probably the rest of you put together you know, on, on theology, the Bible, you know, the walk of faith, you know, working out our Christianity, all of those sorts of things. I have, uh, perhaps Mike have a few, might have a few more than me, but certainly if you take Mike out of the picture, certainly the rest of you put together. Um, and uh, most of which I've actually read, which is even better, isn't it? You know, I know a lot of people have books on their shelves and never read them. Okay. Um, what I'm trying to say to you is this, that, I, that for, for, for nearly 43 years now, I have been working on this. I have been investing in myself. I have taken responsibility for developing and growing in faith and in understanding. And I want you to know this, I still have mentors. I still have people who will sit me down and challenge me and ask me questions and sometimes tell me I shouldn't do something, sometimes tell me I should do something. I have people who I sit down with and do that with on a regular basis. Why? Because that is vitally important. That I have somebody who I have built relationship with, who understands me, who knows what I'm like, who knows what my strengths are, who knows what my weaknesses are, to engage with me and say things like, Dave, have you considered this? Because actually, if you continue the way you're going, you're in for a fall. Do you get what I'm saying? Have you read this book? Because your view there actually is well developed, but you've missed something out of the equation. You need to probably read this book, because that will help you. Um, how are you going to deal with that problem? You know, how are you going to deal with this person? Sometimes having a, a mentor is flipping hard work. Do you know, um, so you know John Pettifer is one of my mentors. He's our um, kind of, he plays an apostolic role over this church. He's been very much a father to me over these last 11 years. He's a really great guy. I love him to bits. I've worked very hard at forging a, a deep relationship with him so that he knows me well enough to say things to me that I need to hear. Yes? And sometimes that's painful. Because when I go to John and sit down with him in one of my sessions with him and I say to him, somebody left the church, the first thing he says to me is, what did you do wrong? And you sit there and you think, oh, ouch. <laughs> you know? Now listen, I, I, I'm quite convinced that a lot of the time I didn't do anything wrong. There are quite clearly some times where I might have done something wrong and probably did do something wrong that in the end caused somebody to leave. All right? So I'm, I'm not kind of 
that far up myself that I don't think, you know, think I walk on water or something. I, I'm not. But actually, it, you know, even in situations where people have left for all the wrong reasons, and it's clearly not my fault, John always asks me that question. What did you do wrong? I want to tell you, it hurts. It's painful. You know? Because I, I, I have to reflect on myself and think, oh, did I do something wrong? Did I handle this right? Did I say the wrong thing? Did I do something at the wrong time? You know? And I'm only, you know, I understand I'm only human. I don't spend hours beating myself up over it, but it can be painful. We, uh, last Sunday evening, some of us were at a, a leadership development seminar, and actually John, it was John Pettifer who was one of the panel at the end answering questions. And um, one of the things that he said, I can't remember what the question was, but the answer really stuck in my head. You know, what do you expect God to say to you um, when you get to heaven? You know, what, what, what's the most important thing in life? What's the most important thing God is going to address? And John Pettifer sat there and he smiled and he said, I think the first thing will God, God will say to me is, how is your wife? Here's a guy who's been in church ministry for lots and lots of years, looks after lots of churches, a leader of leaders, you know. And the first question he expects to get asked when he gets to heaven is, how is your wife? Well, you need a mentor to start putting questions like that into your life. Because you can get so consumed with, what is my ministry? You know, what, what is my calling? God, all these grand things that we like to talk about. You know, what's your vision? You know, all, all of these sorts of things. And miss the really important stuff. How is your wife? Are you looking after her properly? Is she flourishing? Are you resourcing her? Are you protecting her? Are you helping her to grow? And of course, ladies. Uh, by extension, I guess the first question God will ask you is, how's your husband? And then the next question is probably, how are your kids? If we are to grow the way that God wants us to grow, we need people in our lives who we will submit to. And when it says be submissive, it means be obedient. In other words, if Joseph and Mary told Jesus to do something, he did it. Who is there in your life who gets to do that? Because I'm telling you, if there's nobody, you're in trouble. If there's nobody in your life who gets to say no to you, you're in trouble you need that you need a mentor you need somebody a father or a mother in the Lord who will help you who will watch over you who will make sure that you ask the right questions who will give you a little nudge in the right direction who will recommend some course of action that will help you to grow and develop and become everything that God has called you to be and if that's your mum and dad which it was in Jesus case that's absolutely fantastic because that's easy isn't it but it probably isn't your mom and dad if you've been on the journey a while. It could be. It's not an age thing. It's not a relationship thing in terms of family relationships. It's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual connection. It's a spiritual father or mother, a mentor, somebody who will help you to become everything that God has called you to be. And every one of us needs somebody like that in our lives. And... Uh, most of us probably need more than one. I have two or three. Uh, they all do different things for me, um, but I need them 
if I'm to stay on track, if I'm to grow, if I'm to develop, if I'm to become everything that God wants me to be, I need them. Because the objective for us all is like Jesus, is that we grow in wisdom and in stature, that we become more each day of what he's calling us to be. That's our target. That's our task. And it's back to where we started this morning. Isn't it? Seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then if we do that, God's promises, all these things will be added to you. In other words, all of these other things that we stress about will actually find their place and God will sort them out because we are focused on him and following him. Are you with me? Okay, let's stand. I'm going to pray and then we can go and have some coffee. Father God, I pray that you would just, as we stand uh, focused on you, send your Holy Spirit amongst us to just uh, touch our lives afresh, to bring revelation, to take some of that word this morning, whichever bit we need to take, and sow it into our hearts and minds uh, in order that as we go from here, it will not lose it, but we'll um, live our lives according to it. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a greater revelation of the lives that you have for us, of the things that you want us to be growing in, of the things that you want us to achieve as your children, the magnificence of that, the the depth and the breadth of it. Father, I pray this morning that you would, as you touch us with your Holy Spirit, that you would empower us afresh. We recognize, Lord, that our strength is in you. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, come and fill us afresh and strengthen us, fill us with life and uh, strengthen us in order that we will be good followers over these coming days and weeks and months and years. We need you, and we know that we can't do this on our own. So I just pray, Holy Spirit, fill us afresh in Jesus' name. And now I pray that the Lord would bless you, that he would do you good in more ways than you can count, that he would keep you, that he would keep you safe and strong and focused and on the journey that he's called you to that he would draw close to you, that you would feel and that you would recognize the touch of his hand on your life, that you would feel the warmth of his breath as he speaks blessing over you, that you would feel the firmness of the rock underneath your feet, and that he would grant you favor, that he would open doors that are closed, that he would make a way where there isn't a way that he would confound the wisdom of the wise and give you the right word in the right time and that he would cause you to succeed because he loves you because he has called you because he has a great plan for you I pray you be blessed in Jesus name Amen Amen